Chapter fifty seven, part one of the History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, volume five. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, volume five, by Edward Gibbon. Chapter fifty seven. The Turks, part one. The Turks of the House of Seljuk their revolt against Mahmud, conqueror of Hindostan. Tagrus subdues Persia, and protects the caliphs. Defeat and captivity of the emperor Romanus Diogenes by Alp Ursulin. Power and magnificence of Malik Shah. Conquest of Asia Minor and Syria. State and oppression of Jerusalem. Pilgrimages to the Holy Sepulchre. From the Isle of Sicily the reader must transport himself beyond the Caspian Sea, to the original seat of the Turks, or Turkmans, against whom the First Crusade was principally directed. Their Scythian empire of the sixth century was long since dissolved, but the name was still famous among the Greeks and Orientals, and the fragments of the nation, each a powerful and independent people, were scattered over the desert from China to the Oxus and the Danube. The colony of Hungarians was admitted into the Republic of Europe, and the thrones of Asia were occupied by slaves and soldiers of Turkish extraction. While Apulia and Sicily were subdued by the Norman lance, a swarm of these northern shepherds overspread the kingdoms of Persia. Their princes of the race of Seljuk erected a splendid and solid empire from Samarkand to the confines of Greece and Egypt, and the Turks have maintained their dominion in Asia Minor, till the victorious crescent has been planted on the dome of St. Sophia. One of the greatest of the Turkish princes was Mahmud, or Mahmud, the Ghaznavid, who reigned in the eastern provinces of Persia, one thousand years after the birth of Christ. His father, Sebekteji, was the slave of the slave of the slave of the commander of the faithful. But in this descent of servitude, the first degree was merely titular, since it was filled by the sovereign of Transoxiana and Khorasan, who still paid a nominal allegiance to the caliph of Baghdad. The second rank was that of a minister of state, a lieutenant of the Samanides, who broke by his revolt the bonds of political slavery. But the third step was a state of real and domestic servitude in the family of that rebel, from which Sebektaji, by his courage and dexterity, ascended to the supreme command of the city and provinces of Ghazna, as the son-in-law and successor of his grateful master. The falling dynasty of the Samanides was at first protected, and at last overthrown by their servants, and in the public disorders the fortune of Mahmud continually increased. From him the title of sultan was first invented, and his kingdom was enlarged from Traxania to the neighborhood of Isiphon, from the shores of the Caspian to the mouth of the Indus. But the principal source of his fame and riches was the holy war which he waged against the Gentus of Hindustan. In this foreign narrative I may not consume a page, and a volume would scarcely suffice to recapitulate the battles and sieges of his twelve expeditions. Never was the Mussulman hero dismayed by the inclemency of the seasons, the height of the mountains, the breadth of the rivers, the barrenness of the desert, the multitudes of the enemy, or the formidable array of their elephants at war. The Sultan of Ghazna surpassed the limits of the conquests of Alexander, after a march of three months, over the hills of Kashmir and Tibet, he reached the famous city of Kinog, on the upper Ganges, 
and in a naval combat on one of the branches of the Indus he fought and vanquished four thousand boats of the natives. Delhi, Lahore, and Multan were compelled to open their gates. The fertile kingdom of Gazurat attracted his ambition and tempted his stay, and his avarice indulged the fruitless project of discovering the golden and aromatic isles of the southern ocean. On payment of a tribute, the rajas preserved their dominions, the people their lives and fortunes, but to the religion of Hindustan, the zealous Mussulman was cruel and inexorable. Many hundred temples or pagodas were levelled to the ground, many thousand idols were demolished, and the servants of the Prophet were stimulated and rewarded by the precious materials of which they were composed. The pagoda of Sumnat was situate on the promontory of Guzerat, in the neighbourhood of Diu, one of the last remaining possessions of the Portuguese. It was endowed with the revenue of two thousand villages. Two thousand Brahmins were consecrated to the service of the deity, whom they washed each morning and evening in water from the distant Ganges. The subordinate ministers consisted of three hundred musicians, three hundred barbers, and five hundred dancing girls, conspicuous for their birth or beauty. Three sides of the temple were protected by the ocean, the narrow isthmus was fortified by a natural or artificial precipice, and the city and adjacent country were peopled by a nation of fanatics. They confessed the sins and the punishment of Kinog and Delhi, but if the impious stranger should presume to approach their holy precincts, he would surely be overwhelmed by a blast of the divine vengeance. By this challenge the faith of Mahmud was animated to a personal trial of the strength of this Indian deity. Fifty thousand of his worshippers were pierced by the spear of the Muslims. The walls were scaled, the sanctuary was profaned, and the conqueror aimed a blow of his iron mace at the head of the idol. The trembling Brahmins are said to have offered ten million sterling for his ransom, and it was urged by the wisest counsellors that the destruction of a stone image would not change the hearts of the Gentus, and that such a sum might be dedicated to the relief of the true believers. Your reasons, replied the Sultan, are specious and strong, but never in the eyes of posterity shall Mahmud appear as a merchant of idols. He repeated his blows, and a treasure of pearls and rubies, concealed in the belly of the statue, explained in some degree the devout prodigality of the Brahmins. The fragments of the idol were distributed to Ghazna, Mecca, and Medina. Baghdad listened to the edifying tale, and Mahmud was saluted by the Caliph with the title of guardian of the fortune and faith of Mahomet. From the paths of blood, and such is the history of nations, I cannot refuse to turn aside to gather some flowers of science or virtue. The name of Mahmud the Ghaznavide is still venerable in the East. His subjects enjoyed the blessings of prosperity and peace, his vices were concealed by the veil of religion, and two familiar examples will testify his justice and magnanimity. 1. As he sat in the divan, an unhappy subject bowed before the throne, to accuse the insolence of a Turkish soldier who had driven him from his house and bed. "'Suspend your clamours,' said Mahmud. "'Inform me of his next visit, and ourself in person will judge and punish the offender.' The Sultan followed his guide, invested the house with his guards, and extinguished the torches, pronounced the death of the criminal, who had been seized in the act of rapine and adultery. After the execution of his sentence, the lights were rekindled, Mahmud fell prostrate in prayer, and rising from the ground, demanded some homely fare, which he devoured with the voraciousness of hunger. The poor man, whose injury he had avenged, was unable to suppress his astonishment and curiosity, and the courteous monarch condescended to explain the motives of this singular behaviour. 
I had reason to suspect that none, except one of my sons, could dare to perpetrate such an outrage, and I extinguished the lights that my justice might be blind and inexorable. My prayer was a thanksgiving on the discovery of the offender, and so painful was my anxiety that I had passed three days without food since the first moment of your complaint. 2. The Sultan of Ghazna had declared war against the dynasty of the Boides, the sovereigns of the western Persia. He was disarmed by an epistle of the Sultana mother, and delayed his invasion till the manhood of her son. During the life of my husband, said the artful regent, I was ever apprehensive of your ambition. He was a prince and a soldier worthy of your arms. He is now no more. His scepter has passed to a woman and a child, and you dare not attack their infancy and weakness. How inglorious would be your conquest, how shameful your defeat! And yet the event of war is in the hand of the Almighty. Avarice was the only defect that tarnished the illustrious character of Mahmud, and never has that passion been more richly satiated. The Orientals exceeded the measure of credibility in the account of millions of gold and silver, such as the avidity of man has never accumulated. In the magnitude of pearls, diamonds, and rubies, such as have never been produced by the workmanship of nature. Yet the soil of Hindustan is impregnated with precious minerals. Her trade in every age has attracted the gold and silver of the world, and her virgin spoils were rifled by the first of the Mohammedan conquerors. His behavior in the last days of his life evinces the vanity of these possessions, so laboriously won, so dangerously held, and so inevitably lost. He surveyed the vast and various chambers of the treasury of Ghazna, burst into tears, and again closed the doors, without bestowing any portion of the wealth which he could no longer hope to preserve. The following day he reviewed the state of his military force, one hundred thousand foot, fifty-five thousand horse, and thirteen hundred elephants of battle. He again wept the instability of human greatness, and his grief was embittered by the hostile progress of the Turkmans, whom he had introduced into the heart of his Persian kingdom. In the modern depopulation of Asia, the regular operation of government and agriculture is confined to the neighborhood of cities, and the distant country is abandoned to the pastoral tribes of Arabs, Kurds, and Turkmans. Of the last-mentioned people, two considerable branches extend on either side of the Caspian Sea. The western colony can muster forty thousand soldiers. The eastern, less obvious to the traveller, but more strong and populous, has increased to the number of one hundred thousand families. In the midst of civilized nations they preserve the manners of the Scythian desert, remove their encampments with the change of seasons, and feed their cattle among the ruins of palaces and temples. Their flocks and herds are their only riches. Their tents, either black or white, according to the color of the banner, are covered with felt, and of a circular form. Their winter apparel is a sheepskin, a robe of cloth or cotton, their summer garment. The features of the men are harsh and ferocious, the countenance of their women is soft and pleasing. Their wandering life maintains the spirit and exercise of arms. They fight on horseback, and their courage is displayed in frequent contests with each other and with their neighbors. For the license of pasture they pay a slight tribute to the sovereign of the land, but the domestic jurisdiction is in the hands of the chiefs and elders. The first emigration of the eastern Turkmans, the most ancient of the race, may be ascribed to the tenth century of the Christian era. In the decline of the caliphs and the weakness of their lieutenants, the barrier of the Yaxerxes was often violated. In each invasion, after the victory or retreat of their countrymen, some wandering tribe, embracing the Mohammedan faith, 
obtained a free encampment on the spacious plains and pleasant climate of Transoxania and Charisma. The Turkish slaves who aspired to the throne encouraged these emigrations which recruited their armies, awed their subjects and rivals, and protected the frontier against the wilder natives of Turkestan, and this policy was abused by Mahmud the Ghaznavide beyond the example of former times. He was admonished of his error by the chief of the race of Seljuk, who dwelt in the territory of Bukhara. The sultan had inquired what supply of men he could furnish for military service. "'If you send,' replied Ishmael, "'one of these arrows into our camp, fifty thousand of your servants will mount on horseback. And if that number,' continued Mahmud, "'should not be sufficient?' Send this second arrow to the horde of Balik, and you will find fifty thousand more. But, said the Ghaznavide, dissembling his anxiety, if I should stand in need of the whole force of your kindred tribes, dispatch my bow, was the last reply of Ishmael, and as it is circulated around, the summons will be obeyed by two hundred thousand horse. The apprehension of such formidable friendship induced Mahmud to transport the most obnoxious tribes into the heart of Khorasan, where they would be separated from their brethren of the river Oxus, and enclosed on all sides by the walls of obedient cities. But the face of the country was an object of temptation rather than terror, and the vigor of government was relaxed by the absence and death of the sultan of Ghazna. The shepherds were converted into robbers, the bands of robbers were collected into an army of conquerors, as far as Isiphon and the Tigris, Persia was afflicted by their predatory inroads, and the Turkmans were not ashamed or afraid to measure their courage in numbers with the proudest sovereigns of Asia. Masud, the son and successor of Mahmud, had too long neglected the advice of his wisest Omras. "'Your enemies,' they repeatedly urged, "'were in their origin a swarm of ants. They are now little snakes, and unless they be instantly crushed, they will acquire the venom and magnitude of serpents.' After some alternatives of truce and hostility, after the repulse or partial success of his lieutenants, the sultan marched in person against the Turkmans, who attacked him on all sides with barbarous shouts and irregular onset. Masud, says the Persian historian, plunged singly to oppose the torrent of gleaming arms, exhibiting such acts of gigantic force and valor as never a king had before displayed. A few of his friends, roused by his words and actions, and that innate horror which inspires the brave, seconded their lord so well, that wheresoever he turned his fatal sword, the enemies were mowed down, or retreated before him. But now, when victory seemed to blow on his standard, misfortune was active behind it, for when he looked round, he beheld almost his whole army, excepting that body he commanded in person, devouring the paths of flight." The Ghaznavide was abandoned by the cowardice or treachery of some generals of Turkish race, and this memorable day of Zendikhan founded in Persia the dynasty of the shepherd kings. The victorious Turkmans immediately proceeded to the election of a king, and if the probable tale of a Latin historian deserves any credit, they determined by lot the choice of their new master. A number of arrows were successively inscribed with the name of a tribe, a family, and a candidate. They were drawn from the bundle by the hand of a child, and the important prize was obtained by Togro Beg, the son of Michael, the son of Seljuk, whose surname was immortalized in the greatness of his posterity. The Sultan Mahmud, who valued himself in his skill in national genealogy, professed his ignorance of the family of Seljuk, yet the father of that race appears to have been a chief of power and renown. For a daring intrusion into the harem of his prince, Seljuk was banished from Turkestan, 
with a numerous tribe of his friends and vassals, he passed the Yaxarxes, encamped in the neighborhood of Samarkand, embraced the religion of Mohammed, and acquired the crown of martyrdom in a war against the infidels. His age of a hundred and seven years surpassed the life of his son, and Seljuk adopted the care of his two grandsons, Togrul and Jafar, the eldest of whom, at the age of forty-five, was invested with the title of sultan in the royal city of Nishabur. The blind determination of chance was justified by the virtues of the successful candidate. It would be superfluous to praise the valour of a Turk, and the ambition of Togrul was equal to his valour. By his arms the Ghaznavids were expelled from the eastern kingdoms of Persia, and gradually driven to the banks of the Indus, in search of a softer and more wealthy conquest. In the west he annihilated the dynasty of the Boides, and the sceptre of Iraq passed from the Persian to the Turkish nation. The princes who had felt, or who feared, the Seljukian arrows, bowed their heads in the dust. By the conquest of Azerbaijan, or Medea, he approached the Roman confines, and the shepherd presumed to dispatch an ambassador, or herald, to demand the tribute and obedience of the emperor of Constantinople. In his own dominions, Togrul was the father of his soldiers and people. By a firm and equal administration, Persia was relieved from the evils of anarchy, and the same hands which had been imbrued in blood became the guardians of justice and the public peace. The more rustic, perhaps the wisest, portion of the Turkmans continued to dwell in the tents of their ancestors, and from the Oxus to the Euphrates these military colonies were protected and propagated by their native princes. But the Turks of the court and the city were refined by business and softened by pleasure. They imitated the dress, the language, and manners of Persia, and the royal palaces of Nishabur and Rey displayed the order and magnificence of a great monarchy. The most deserving of the Arabians and Persians were promoted to the honours of the state, and the whole body of the Turkish nation embraced, with fervour and sincerity, the religion of Mohammed. The northern swarms of barbarians, who overspread both Europe and Asia, have been irreconcilably separated by the consequences of a similar conduct. Among the Muslims, as among the Christians, their vague and local traditions have yielded to the reason and authority of the prevailing system, to the fame of antiquity, and the consent of nations. But the triumph of the Koran is more pure and meritorious, as it was not assisted by any visible splendor of worship, which might allure the pagans by some resemblance of idolatry. The first of the Seljukian sultans was conspicuous by his zeal and faith. Each day he repeated the five prayers which are enjoined to the true believers. Of each week the first two days were consecrated by an extraordinary fast, and in every city a mosque was completed before Togrul presumed to lay the foundations of a palace. With the belief of the Koran, the son of Seljuk imbibed a lively reverence for the successor of the Prophet. But that sublime character was still disputed by the caliphs of Baghdad and Egypt, and each of the rivals was solicitous to prove his title in the judgment of the strong, though illiterate barbarians. Mahmud the Geznavide had declared himself in favour of the line of Abbas, and had treated with indignity the robe of honour which was presented by the Fatimite ambassador. Yet the ungrateful Hashemite had changed with the change of fortune. He applauded the victory of Zendikan, and named the Seljukian sultan his temporal vice-regent over the Muslim world. As Togrul executed and enlarged this important trust, he was called to the deliverance of the Caliph Kayem, and obeyed the holy summons, which gave a new kingdom to his arms. In the palace of Baghdad the commander of the faithful still slumbered, a venerable phantom. 
His servant or master, the prince of the Boides, could no longer protect him from the insolence of meaner tyrants, and the Euphrates and Tigris were oppressed by the revolt of the Turkish and Arabian emirs. The presence of a conqueror was implored as a blessing, and the transient mischiefs of fire and sword were excused as the sharp but salutary remedies which alone could restore the health of the Republic. At the head of an irresistible force, the Sultan of Persia marched from Hamadan. The proud were crushed, the prostrate were spared, the prince of the Boides disappeared, the heads of the most obstinate rebels were laid at the feet of Togrul, and he inflicted a lesson of obedience on the people of Mosul and Baghdad. After the chastisement of the guilty, and the restoration of peace, the royal shepherd accepted the reward of his labors, and a solemn comedy represented the triumph of religious prejudice over barbarian power. The Turkish sultan embarked on the Tigris, landed at the gate of Raqqa, and made his public entry on horseback. At the palace gate he respectfully dismounted, and walked on foot, preceded by his emirs without arms. The caliph was seated behind his black veil, the black garment of the Abbasides was cast over his shoulders, and he held in his hand the staff of the Apostle of God. The conqueror of the East kissed the ground, stood some time in a modest posture, and was led towards the throne by the vizier and interpreter. After Togrul had seated himself on another throne, his commission was publicly read, which declared him the temporal lieutenant of the vicar of the prophet. He was successively invested with seven robes of honor, and presented with seven slaves, the natives of the seven climates of the Arabian Empire. His mystic veil was perfumed with musk, two crowns were placed on his head, two scimitars were girded to his side, as the symbols of a double reign over the east and west. After this inauguration, the sultan was prevented from prostrating himself a second time, but he twice kissed the hand of the commander of the faithful, and his titles were proclaimed by the voice of the heralds and the applause of the Muslims. In a second visit to Baghdad, the Seljukian prince again rescued the caliph from his enemies, and devoutly, on foot, led the bridle of his mule from the prison to the palace. Their alliance was cemented by the marriage of Togrul's sister with the successor of the prophet. Without reluctance he had introduced a Turkish virgin into his harem, but Kayyam proudly refused his daughter to the sultan, disdained to mingle the blood of the Hashemites with the blood of a Scythian shepherd, and protracted the negotiation many months, till the gradual diminution of his revenue admonished him that he was still in the hands of a master. The royal nuptials were followed by the death of Trogrul himself. As he left no children, his nephew Alp Arsan succeeded to the title and prerogatives of sultan, and his name, after that of the caliph, was pronounced in the public prayers of the Muslims. Yet in this revolution— the Abbasides acquired a larger measure of liberty and power. On the throne of Asia, the Turkish monarchs were less jealous of the domestic administration of Baghdad, and the commanders of the faithful were relieved from the ignominious vexations to which they had been exposed by the presence and poverty of the Persian dynasty. End of chapter 57, part 1